Boban Dedevich, and this is episode six of the what we talk about when we talk about mind podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Raymond Benson. He's an international communications consultant and language teacher with almost 20 years of experience in four languages as well as Mandarin Chinese. He's helped an untold number of students acquire a second language in both business and military settings. Today, we're going to discuss French, Spanish, and German, mostly focusing on verbs related to volition and intentionality. We also bring up Latin and Greek to supplement our discussion of philology. This episode is most interesting to me because we touch on topics that are sparse in terms of rigorous academic interest. Because of his wealth of experience, I'm excited to discuss what he talks about when he talks about mine. Our hat for the day is the Greek word frames or framus. It's actually a plural of the singular frame, and it might be related to the word diaphragm. In the Homeric epics, such as Iliad and Odyssey, the word appears very frequently, and oftentimes it gets translated as mind or intention. Frames is also special because it's one of these words that can contain another one of these mind words in Greek. So for example, in one passage of the Odyssey, a character's throbbing care or heart is said to be contained within the frames. Sometimes the word naos or nous is said to be contained in the frames as well. But it's also unlike the organ and also unlike other mind words. Sometimes it refers to the respiratory system or breathing patterns. For example, in the Homeric epics, when a character is sad, it is oftentimes said that grief was cast into the frames. So that's the word for the day. It's the Greek word frames or framus. And it's an awesome word that's used very much in the Greek Homeric epics. Our book recommendation for the week is Wheelock's Latin by Frederick M. Wheelock. It's been the standard de facto grammar of learning the classical Latin for roughly 50 years. And it's composed of 40 chapters, which covers all those things that you might expect in an introductory grammar, as well as some very curious moral epithets that every student should be very familiar with. This revised edition is available online and you can get it for a fairly inexpensive price as there are many copies circulating around. So the book recommendation is a language book known as Wheelock's Latin by Frederick M. Wheelock. How are you doing today, Ray? Good. Doing well. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your education, your background, and your professional activities with respect to both psychology and language. I went to school at Western Washington University up in Bellingham, Washington, Washington State, and uh, I Started my business, though, in 2016, doing international language and communication consulting. And I did, did a lot of language training and teaching for professionals. But mainly what I studied in, in the university was the modern and classical languages department. And I studied Spanish literature, French literature, and linguistics, and Chinese literature. I was invited up in, in my last year at the university there to the linguistics department in the 400 level. And when I uh, went to school at, in Taichung at, at Fengzhou University, I got my Chinese language certificate. But primarily I, I use 
English, Spanish, French, German here in the United States. And when I do more business in Asia, I tend to you know, do a little bit more work in Chinese. It's great to hear that you have this overwhelming experience in such vastly different language families. Could you talk a little bit more about the nature of language acquisition from your perspective in a business context? Or to rephrase it, could you tell us the difference between both adults and children with respect to language acquisition? Yeah, there's, there's a big difference between uh, language acquisition for adults and children. Young childhood acquisition is very developmental. So that's going to take the place of that kind of unique spot, whether it be psychological or neurological. But you have a like this pseudo science uh, that is really popular with marketing, like from Rosetta Stone saying that you can learn a second language the same way you learned your first, when that's a kind of unique phenomenon to happen in a child is, and sometimes two languages can take that place, right? When a child is raised bilingual, that person will observe and analyze the world thereafter with that first language. And so when I teach language to adults, we're analyzing through that native language lens, right? That's the main difference is that I know there's a very important thing for me to know as a teacher, what is their native language? And then I can try to go th through that perspective. So I did, I've started my research in Germany, January, 2013, I believe. And it was very useful that these students were German, native German speakers. And I was teaching them another Germanic language of English. So it helped me to understand English a lot better, right? And it was a lot easier to give these examples through their own language because it's just a, a, a further evolved form of German, right? You have a lot of these concepts that were born out of German that we use in modern English. And, and so that perspective is a lot easier to deal with. Then one of my research subjects, well, his spouse is from Poland, right? So her native language is Polish, the Slavic language. And so that perspective was a lot more difficult to, for me to, to try to teach from the perspective of a Slavic language, because I don't know any Slavic languages. I just know of them. <laughs> and I know some of the aspects of them, right? So Anyways, my point is that you have with adults, you have to analyze things from something they already know, their native language. You can analyze, you can present it in a way where they can tear it apart and put it back together through the lens of their native language. With children, they're learning from a blank slate, right? And, the, and the, from that point, from that native language on, they're going to be analyzing the world and language and culture through that lens. Is it accurate to summarize that it's easier for children to learn languages than it is for adults? Is that an accurate characterization of your experience? You know, I think that it's hard to say easier or harder because I think that uh, it's so situational and it so depends on motivation. Uh, I think that 
I've seen students of mine fail because even though they're smart enough and they have, might have en enough of an, a natural ability to learn language or whatever uh, to do it successfully, if they just would not give themselves a barrier by saying, oh, I'm not the same as that guy. Oh, I didn't learn it as well as this prodigy or whatever. And so if they lose motivation, then they stop themselves, even though they're perfectly capable and intelligent and skilled enough to, to do it and be successful. So you have a child who might have a bad memory associated with a language or with that kind of learning environment or whatever, and they're totally disenchanted with the process of learning language, even though they're maybe really skilled or talented in it or intelligent enough to do it. So I just, from my observation, I think that when you put a, a, put a box for people saying, uh, are you talented enough to do it? Are you intelligent enough to do it? It's the wrong thing to look at because what's way more of a factor is do they want to do it or they're being forced to do it? And what's the motivation of, of pursuing this thing that is not something you can learn overnight? I know that it's a lot easier for marketing to say, Oh, you can do it effortlessly, but that's not how it is. You can't learn a, a piano effortlessly, right? <laughs> to go back to your previous comment about Rosetta Stone making the claim that you can learn a second language as easily as the first, I would highly agree with you that it's not quite so simple. And I've learned a few languages on my own, and you've obviously shown with your professional background that you've had to teach other people. So you've seen this process very intimately. And it follows from this that our combined experiences reflect that it is a marketing slogan that perhaps goes a little bit too far. So I don't want to be sued by Rosetta Stone. So I'm not going to push the issue any further, but we might note it for now. Well, it's, it's, I, 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 like the, I, I like the question because it's something that everybody's thinking about. So it's a good thing to have in the forefront of discussion, I think. I don't think that's a bad thing at all to discuss that because people want to think in terms of, is it hard or is it easy? Right? Is it hard or is it easy to learn how to ride a bike or to go swimming in that body of water or whatever? that helps them gauge whether they want to do it or not, you know? And it's interesting, even the process of learning a language, as you noted, it circles back to motivation, willingness, capability. And these topics, I may remark, fall under the auspices of psychology because you can't have one without the other. You can't discuss motivation or willingness unless you understand the psychology of that person alongside their capability. But I want to ask you about something known as a reflexive personal pronoun. So if given the sentence, I did it myself, the pronoun myself is reflecting the subject of the verb I, thereby being reflexed. I understand this construction to be a very strong indicator of ego or sense of self. Could you talk about your experience with this specific construction from the perspective of everything else that you've shared about your background about language acquisition? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting topic that I come across all the time in teaching, especially romance languages from an English-speaking background, in 
you know, one of the things that really spurred this thought off for me was when I was learning Chinese in college and I had no, I had zero expectations for what I was going to be able to do in Chinese. But when I learned the word wall, that was a very, you know, this word I in Chinese is that it's the hand holding a weapon, like a soldier holding a weapon. And I thought, why would you think about that as I? Why? What is the reasoning there? It was so bizarre to me. And then you think about what you do in English for that, right? I and myself and the word selbst from German and stuff. And then you go into where you don't even have the word self in Romance language like French and, and Spanish, the ones that I can actually speak to because, you know, I'm not a big student of Latin. I'm like a, a French student of Latin, <laughs> right? Because I study other variations of it, but I, I've never really sat down. I, I, I bought a book about Latin when I was in high school that I studied on my own, but I'm not a scholar in it by any means. But the, the main difference is that when you're looking as a native English speaker and you're looking for that word self, to translate that sentence, you don't find it. It's not there. You have a grammatical concept of the reflexive. When you put a reflexive conjugation into a plural, then it becomes reciprocal, right? And so that is that concept builds the self where the subject pronoun is the same as the object pronoun, right? So you're doing the, the, the part of the sentence that's using the verb is the same as the as a part of the sentence that's been affected by the verb right and that's how you do self in spanish right so it's completely fundamentally different so if i have sometimes i have students in my french classes who are native spanish speakers and it's so easy i just say it's the same as in spanish like oh okay yeah that makes sense so you put you make just make sure that the that the subject is the same as the object, and boom, there you go. But then native English speakers are going, uh, where's self? <laughs> where's the word self in there? And it's Could just, you, it do, doesn't exist, you know? I apologize for interrupting. Could you give us an actual textual example in either Spanish or French, how that would sound, and maybe a translation of how that would be read in English, just to give the listener a baseline of comparison so i really like the example with like i wash my hands right is that uh you're saying i wash uh, my hands right and in spanish it's i wash myself the hands right so me lavo las manos right and so uh, me is the object of the sentence so I'm washing myself. And then you conjugate labo. So lavar, lavarse is the is a, uh, infinitive form of the verb, right? So in Spanish, it's kind of nice. I kind of like how they deploy their, their reflexives, right? Is you have lavar. Lavar is a non-reflexive verb. But you can make it a reflexive verb by adding that, that uh, object pronoun to the end of it. When you employ it, you put the object pronoun to the front of the sentence like you would any object pronoun whether it be indirect or direct, in front of the conjugated verb, right? But in Spanish, it's a pro-drop language. So you can drop the subject pronoun. You don't need it. And in fact, in a lot of cases, it's more correct if you 
don't have the subject pronoun in the sentence. So that's why you can say me labo. And then you don't even say my hands like you do in English. In English, you have that possessive pr pronoun my, right? But you don't have that. Just the hands, las manos, right? So it's, it's so disconnected. And then like, here's another great example of just how you frame it differently is I forgot in English is you're activating the verb forget with personal responsibility. I forgot. In Spanish, you say, se me olvidó, right? It forgot me, right? It's not my fault. It forgot me, right? So the thing that you forgot is the one activating the verb, right? So it puts the subject and the object in a more even playing field on in the Romance languages. German uses a similar kind of reflexive as those Romance languages, uh, but they also have the concept of selbst, yeah, of the of the self. And in English, you just don't have that reflexive particle at all. You you focus more on that concept of self in the in English, you know. And this use of the self definitely comes to us from the Greek tradition. There's a great great paper in Greek which documents or rather tracks the progression and development of the reflexive pronoun autos in Greek from Homer to Plato, I believe. It's interesting how they use these constructions differently and they express themselves differently. Well, look at, uh, look at how Spanish and French use uh, that, those letters. Is that yo, using the, what we call um, y, literally the Greek I, that's what that letter is called in Spanish, y, the Greek I, and that's used for yo, I, right? Y-O for I in Spanish. And then you have, um, in French, the, the letter Y is called y, also the Greek I, right? As opposed to um, when you have the, the, what we call I, in Spanish, it's called ilatina, right? The Latin I. And, and uh, of course, they operate in a similar fashion where they're like interchangeable when you need to, when needed in a sentence. So, for example, if, the, if uh, in French, uh, if you need to, uh, or well, in French and Spanish, if you need to separate a vowel cluster, which French likes vowel clusters more than Spanish does, but in Spanish, if you need to separate a vowel cluster, you'll throw a Y in there instead of the I. Or like uh, if you have the next letter in the sentence um, going to be, so you have the word the word Y or E in Spanish meaning and, the next word is um, starts with a, an I or an E sound, right? Then you switch it to an I. Right, or you switch it to an E, sorry, you switch it to an E. And so uh, you have, um, uh, my point is with, with Spanish and French, they see these letters as interchangeable almost, almost like a tag team, you know? And, uh, oh, sorry, and sorry, go ahead. Just for, a, just for a listener that might be unfamiliar with the diphthongs and triphthongs, could you explain to the listener what a vowel cluster is? Oh, yeah. Well, let's just look at the word uh, bow, right? We have this as a common, uh, uh, well, in the word beautiful, right? And so you have three vowels in a row to make one sound. 
right? And uh, French loves it, loves it. Uh, Spanish does not. So if you have a, a situation where you have three vowels in a row, Spanish has to do something about it. It's freaking, it's freaking out. And it's going, oh no, what are we going to do? So they'll replace letters to make it so that you uh, don't have that cluster. Sometimes it's inevitable and you do have some vowel clusters in, in Spanish, but what's a lot more common in Spanish is doing a diphthong, which is where you have two letters that make one sound. And that's very common with, uh, with the vowels even, but that can be with consonants as well. If that, if that answers your question, hopefully. I consider vowels to be some of the most challenging aspects of learning a language. And I'll tell you why. When you have two or three vowels in a row, in many languages, it comes to pass those vowels contract into a different sound. Henceforth, <clears throat> rather, thereby, that's why they're called vowel contraction rules. In Latin, these are pretty straightforward where the vowel will condense either into an E or an I because it doesn't happen so often. But depending on the part of speech, whether it's a noun or a verb, the stress of the vowel also changes. And this is difficult for some people to grasp because they forget how simple it is and how much they use it in their daily lives. For example, look at the noun convict, but look at the verb form, convict. They're spelled exactly the same way, but the difference is the stress on which vowel, and that's determined by these arbitrary rules about part of speech and where the stress goes. But in other languages, such as Semitic ones like Akkadian, the vowel contraction rules are very core part of the grammar because depending on how the vowels contract actually determines what the word means. And we're not gonna get into the structure of consonants and how the Akkadian language works, but the vowels are a very big deal in how the language is studied. So I think well, it's a, go ahead. If I might add to this, uh, one of the things that is kind of relieving that I like to stress to my students is that when you have uh, a lot of irregularities, a lot of uh, fundamental changes in how uh, vowels will work together and how consonants will work together, and a lot of things that seem like at first a lot to know and remember, uh, it, it's usually the one, the words in a language that are most common are the most frequently used. So if you're really actually studying consistently and doing the kind of study that you want to be doing because you, you're passionate about it and you, and you make the time for it because you want to do it, then you get used to those patterns, even though they're so irregular because they're irregular because they're often used, right? So uh, you have these, these really bizarre uh, and different uh, irregular patterns in like et, for example. People get really stressed out when they see uh, the words to be in French and Spanish. Et, and then you have je suis, tu es, il est, nous sommes, vous êtes, right? Those are so different. <laughs> and there are different ways to use those vowels. You have uh, some diphthongs in there, and you have different pronounce pronunciations of the E, and all these kinds of things happening with it. Then in Spanish, you arguably, you can argue that you have two different verbs for it to be, or three different verbs to be, kind of however you want to hash it out. Uh, I've heard some people, some books say that 
haber isn't even to be, that is to have. And it's, well, that's a whole other discussion in and of itself. But you have ser and estar, and they're used just like our word to be, but they're in two different words, right? But the thing is, is all those variations and all those irregularities and all those weird spellings and whatever, they're so common and fundamental to the language that if you're actually studying it like you sh should be, like 20, 30 minutes a day, that it should become second nature to you, just like it is to every other speaker of the language, right? But I wanted to ask you, given your background in language acquisition, how often do you encounter people having issues with some of these words that might be psychological? And I'll list a few of these for you to see what comes to mind. Mind, heart, verbs like to think, thought, and anything that expresses feelings, emotions, thinking, pondering, or a sensation, perception. Could you go through them by the categories so you could tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, uh, this has uh, been, it, it's such a broad concept that you don't even hardly realize how fundamental it is until you really start to hash it out. Because practic practically, if you're using the language practically, you don't consider it. You don't think about it, right? You're just uh, using those, those words. Uh, for example, one of, the, one of the differences that really comes to mind when I'm teaching, like, the difference between creer y, uh, and pensar. And then uh, you have kind of the same concept almost in croix and penser, right, in French. Uh, the first thing that comes to mind when I hear this kind of concept of practicality of using it just flippantly in a in the in the right situation in the right context or whatever, and actually what it's meaning, that kind of uh, concept really helps students if I actually just literally tell them what it means. So, like you have the creer, it means to think or to believe in Spanish, and you have pensar, which is. Uh, uh, to think or to plan. And so when you're trying to relate that to somebody who's a native English speaker, you have to make, uh, you have to point to cognates. So you have, uh, you have creer is like a cognate with creed, right? Is you have a creed that's a belief, right? And you can say, creo que blah, blah, blah. I think that whatever, right? Is, uh, and you're, you're not saying that I believe this deity or this religion or whatever. You're just saying, I think that, right? And so you'll translate that as I think that. But then you go back and you translate to think into Spanish as pensar. And then I'm saying, what gives, right? Is that you have, I thought pensar was to think. It's like, well, yes, pensar is to think. But in this situation, we say creer. Like it's more normal, more common to, in this situation, we say creer. And then they go, but I'm not believing something. I'm just thinking something. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay, so we got we to gotta get down to this is a fundamental way that this culture uses and views the world and views uh, concepts and whatever that's different from how we do in English. We're not going to always use believe in the same way. You could. You could say, I believe that the train is late. But it's, it's, a, it's maybe more common to say, I think that the train is late. And also when you have um, 
you have basically the same concept in, with quoi in French, meaning to believe or to think, and penser, which means in French to believe or to uh, plan and to think, right? They're used very differently. You cannot interchange them, really. Um, in, in English, it's a little bit easier to, to, to interchange them because we have the word to plan, right? Um, well, you covered, you did a really great job of covering some of those important verbs before we get to the nouns. Because mind is an important word, but it's only a noun, although it can be used as a verb in a quite different sense. But I'd like to touch on what you said about the verb to believe. In Latin, this is credere, meaning to believe, but the context here matters quite a bit. So in Latin, typically credere comes up when you're talking about a dispute between two people or when something, there's some sort of object of disagreement and a third objective third party has to decide. So it has to do very much with respect to the person as well as the context of the situation. And we see vestiges of all of this in English. For example, we have the verb, I'm sorry, we have the Latin verb credere, but we have English words such as creed that you noted, but also credit. Are you believable? Are you trustworthy? So it really bleeds over into a number of these important psychological categories. And regarding how fundamental some of these words are to our daily lexicon or the vocabulary we use on a daily basis. I was having dinner with a friend last evening who happens to be an endodontist, which means he does root canals. And we were talking about medical terminology and the word for mouth is mentis. And this shows you how from the Latin language, there's an affinity between what we say mind, when we say mind, as well as the modality of hearing and also speech. And yeah. even some of the terms that we've been discussing, take the terms fundamental or developmental, which we've used liberally in this discussion, they're affixed with, or rather they're, those words end with the word mental, which ties into the very theme of this podcast. So having covered these verbs in extent, so let's talk a little bit about these nouns such as brain, mind, heart. Do you ever encounter language acquisition challenges from some of your clients with respect to these specific nouns? Uh, I think... Um... Having studied medical terminology in, in uh, university as well, uh, not that I got any kind of paper showing it <laughs> or a degree in it, but uh, I no noticed that when you, you frame the anatomy very clearly as opposed to something that's not anatomical. So you have a very clear difference between la mente and el cerebro. Right, you have the mind and the brain, and the brain is the organ, right? And then la mente is is the uh, is the the mind. You know, the mind is the mind. It's not a, a physical object. So you have that kind of uh, concept. I think relatively clearly hashed out in in those Romance languages, as far as I can tell this might be a good reference, is that you have the word capacity, capacidad, right? Capacity, right? Capacity and 
Spanish and French. Uh, what do you have in there? You have the word cap, right? Reference to the head, right? And so you have that uh, ability or talent coming out of the head. Uh, I don't know if that's something that you're uh, referring to exactly, but then you have the same kind of um, carryover into German, where in German, the Gehirn is the brain. There's not nearly as much reference to the brain as there is to uh, capacity uh, as to um, kolf, right? Like you're having a foggy kolf head, right? Or you're having a pain in the head or there's a lot of references where kolf in German. Does, does that help? Does that help answer your question at all? No, I'm just kind of throwing words out there. You made a very interesting comment that I'd like to go back to. You said that the word mind is purely abstract in nature and it's not anatomical. And I'm very interested in this because this is often a conundrum that I have in studying ancient language, which is to say, of course, that it's very helpful to know whether you're dealing with a concrete or abstract noun when you're trying to do an ambiguous translation. Do you encounter in these Romance languages that the word mind has a clear cognate? And if so, is it always used in an abstract sense? Well, okay. I, I think that uh, that concept is universally pervasive, right? I mean, you have a, humans who don't understand the world and their tool of language is not adequate to explain what they don't know. So if you go back far enough, I'm sure that you could see that a lot of these words are being used out of uh, because they don't have a word to explain something that they just figured out or whatever, right? So probably these words are outdated anyways. So if you have, uh, you might think if you're an ancient person and you don't understand the difference uh, or you don't believe in the difference of a, of a, a physical organ brain and a mind, right? That you might, uh, you might not even have that concept of them being, one being physical and one not, you know? So I, I can't speak to that. I don't know because um, I, I really enjoy studying etymology, but I just don't know the etymology of those words well enough because I, it, it feels to me as somebody who teaches these languages and uses them on a regular basis that uh, it, it seems to me that it, it's very distinct that one is physical and one is, is just simply not physical. And it's almost like it's a byproduct of the other. Let's go through some of these languages that you're very comfortable with. And let's cover what some of these analogous mind words are. So for French, Spanish, and German, could you go through for each word and tell us what they are in the context that they're used to the best that you can recollect? There is a very interesting difference in how you use to think and to believe in German. <clears throat> Denken is the root verb to think, right? D-E-N-K-E-N, to think. And then you have gedachte, or sorry, dachte, which means a thought, right? Ein dachte. And then you have der Gedanke. <laughs> and then you have das Denken, nach uh, denken, uh, afterthought, uh, sorry, uh, die Ober, uh, Überlegung, 
which is a, th a thought about something, right? Like a, because um, überlegen means to think about something, right? Uh, which is really interesting because it doesn't even use this word denken at all, but it is thinking about something, right? Uh, and then you have DID, right? Which is, uh, uh, which is from the Latin word, like idea, right? Um, you have Idechen, which is like a little idea, because that's a diminutive in German, is it C-H-E-N, the chin, right? And the Einfall, right? And Einfall doesn't even, you know, come from Denken, but it's like, a, it's like um, kind of denoting like a thought that you had, like a, like a, um, a realization, you know? And so, yeah, it's a very interesting how you you have a lot of different ways to express the kind of idea, the kind of thinking that you have in German. And uh, then when you have this, this word Glauben, uh, it's used so differently from Denken. I think that it's even used um, maybe more differently from in uh, the Romance languages with the difference between like creer and pensar you know, to believe, uh, think, and like to plan to think in Spanish, right? Because you have all these different variations of um, of the Glauben and the Denken. You don't have a lot of those different variations in the Romance languages. You have pensamiento, a thought, but that's just, you know, the word pensar with the suffix on it, right? You don't have these other totally different out of left field words like you do in German. So I don't know. It's, a, it's been a, something that I've been a, a really practical user of the languages, going out into the world and just using them, and then trying to train people to use it practically. And this is a very good thought exercise of like, what is it when you hash it out, you know? Um, what about for French? Is there a word for mind in French? This, um, when you think mind in French, you can say the first thing I think of because I'm a teacher, I think that this has a lot to do with because I, I teach it and I want people to understand it and grasp it. I say la mentalité. La mentalité is just mentality, right? So you're, you're uh, changing the way that you frame something, you're changing the way that you think about something, but that's not exactly the mind. The mind in French is l'esprit. And that comes from the word spirit, right? And so we have this, this uh, feeling of, of this disembodied, not physical, not carnal uh, phenomenon uh, that could come from, come from the, uh, uh, the brain, but it doesn't necessarily because it's more I think uh, the sense that I would get, I'm being very careful about being subjective with this, is that it doesn't come from the brain. It doesn't come from the heart. It comes from the soul. Because this concept of soul is pretty pervasive in Romance languages, right? You have um, the, uh, the uh, alm and uh, alma is soul, right? In French and Spanish. And then you have... Uh, the um what's the latin word for soul again it's, it has the ae um, animus animus masculine, anima for 
the feminine version, but it all it has different English meanings. And I want to hear your analysis on it. But when English speakers use the word animus, it's considered hostility or ill will, such as what is your animus against me? It's an important distinction. Yeah, I would never, but I, you know, and I think that this, uh, because, you know, to speak to the, the spirit of, I think, what you want to talk about, this is a very important uh, important part of my teaching I, uh, that I employ a lot is that is that you're not going to sound immediately like a native speaker. That can be a goal, but in order for you to really get uh, motivated and, and feel good about the language that you're speaking, you need to own it as your own. And that almost opens up a whole new part of you, a whole new person in you that is that speaker of that language. So when I speak Spanish, I will, you know, I'm seeing the world through Spanish, uh, Spanish lens. And so I'm going to, you know, kind of almost change a little bit my mannerisms, uh, the way I frame things, the way that I understand topics and talk about topics, right? Because um, I'm taking on the, <laughs> the, uh, the animus or the, the soul of that language for me. And I, when I interact with that language, I interact with that culture. And there's a spirit in the culture. I think that you would probably agree. When you're, when you're in a Latin culture, it's so much different from a Germanic-style culture, right? The word soul is one of these very versatile words that everybody thinks that they understand, but upon closer scrutiny, it comes to pass that this is not the case. I've looked at this word in many languages from the earliest languages, but even if we stick to the Indo-European language, that is to say... Greek, German, French, Italian, and even Russian. Uh -huh. You see the development of this word. We find its earliest uses in Homeric Greek, which I wrote about at some length in my Minds in Homer paper, which I'll provide a link for. But in the earliest uses of the oldest books of the Iliad, the word in Greek is psyche or psuche, depending on how you'd like to pronounce it an anglicized that comes out to being psyche. And this word is actually regarded as a life substance. And I'll give you examples of the context in which it is used. When a spear goes through a soldier, he bleeds out his psyche, or when a soldier gasps their last breath of air, the psyche leaves their mouth or leaves some part of their limbs. So when you look at the anatomical references, you have to pause and say, my, this is quite interesting because it's being talked about as if it was blood or some sort of animacy that left the person before they died. But you see a transition just, as I've argued at some length, just 100, 150 years later when the Odyssey was written down, you see this word psyche being used in very new ways. Mainly, it has more affinities with what we consider to be this concept of a soul that's quite modern. And in the actual text, you see the word psyche being seen as something completely subjective, inanimate, that leaves the person and survives as this translucent Casper-like ghost that you can talk to, especially when Odysseus sees characters from the Iliad in the underworld or the netherworld or whatever you'd like to call it. And therein, this 
concept of a psyche for less known people are literally depicted as screeching bats. His psyche flew around screeching. I mean, what do you do with that as a psycholinguist or as a translator? And you cannot, you certainly cannot reconcile this from a postmodern standpoint. So I say all that to make this point and this distinction. I think it's important to recognize that language can be studied from two axes. The first is synchrony or study of language at a single point in time, but also from diachrony or the study of language through time. And I think very much that as people use these words, their meanings fundamentally change. And in some cases they get recycled, other meanings get terminated, new ones get added. So I'm sure you see these differences, you can attest to it, but taking all of this in perspective and jumping to the next lily pad, do you ever encounter noticeable differences where you think there shouldn't be with respect to some of these words? Uh, well, for example, you have, this is a thing that's pervasive in today's culture. That's not just an ancient thing of people believing in ghosts and disembodied spirits and all that stuff. It's definitely something that people still believe today. I don't uh, personally believe in any of that, but I think that I understand it through the lens of you uh, have the spirit of somebody that can live on through the memory of them. So you have um, uh, what I like to reconcile is I don't want to discredit anybody's understanding of these words or use of these words, because guess what? They're the ones using it however they want to use it. And I think that that is the driving force of why of, of my study of linguistics is that I want to observe how people are using the language and trying to understand from their perspective of why they're using it that way. So I don't uh, think that it, it will help anybody, uh, me even uh, less so than other people, uh, by saying that, oh, you're using it wrong or you're using it literally when you shouldn't use it literally. Maybe they mean to be, use it literally. Right, maybe that's their intended meaning. So, um, but understanding how they are using those words, I think, is the most fascinating thing. Uh, whether it's two thousand years ago, five thousand years ago, or today, this idea of the spirit—what is this? It? Metaphysical, anyways. Right? Metaphysics, by definition, we can't know anything about concretely. So, if you're going to use these words to talk about something metaphysical, I, I highly encourage it. I highly encourage everybody to use, you know, I think that's, that's the driving force of, uh, driving force of uh, language evolution anyways, right? These kinds of discussions are very necessary and they reflect some of the challenges that fields like linguistics and psychology have with respect to furthering our knowledge about ourselves. So, but moving on to an interesting question that I was most curious about, from your experience, how do you treat the word mind when you're teaching other languages? And more so, how do you explain it? The most that I dive into teaching mind is with those two words that I had described earlier, is uh, to think and to believe. I, I, I think the most of it lies in that. And when you're also, oh, you know what? You know what just came to mind is that, um, is that in, in, in French and Spanish, the concept of subjunct, uh, subjunctive is incredibly important. And we have subjunctive in English, but it's very hard to notice because a lot of times 
it's not uh, even a, a spell change or anything. It, it exists, but we don't hardly, we can't notice it. And it's not a big relevant thing in English, but it's the concept behind, I wish I were taller, as opposed to saying like, I wish I am taller. Or, I wish I was taller. You're saying, I wish I were taller. And that's destructive, but we don't even hardly even recognize that. But when you, the way that I teach subjunctive is that first I have to describe the mood change as opposed to indicative. Indicative literally indicates what is, what's real and what has came to be or come to be and um, more or less reality as opposed to something that has not happened yet, has not come to fruition, but has some kind of doubt or volition behind it. And as a native Spanish speaker, you're like, oh, whatever. I just say the, you know, I just say the opposite vowel. Like, for example, hablo instead of hable, right? Like you, uh, I speak rather than, uh, you know, the wanting to speak or the uh, somebody hopes or doubts that I speak, right? It's like uh, that concept is built into a whole mood in Spanish and French and presumably Italian and other Romance languages, right? Is that you have this really built-in, I think efficient, in a lot of ways more efficient than we do in English, mood in these languages that express intention and doubt and all of these emotions that come from maybe more an, of an of a, of a animus, not a, a physical consequence to a physical action, like maybe is more indicative, right? Is we have the, the rock rolls into the tree, right? There's no, there's no agency there necessarily. There's no individuality or whatever. It's just a physical action that happens. And then when you talk about subjunctive, you're only talking about the will or the doubt or the emotional response from a person. You cannot have a physical or a non-person a, a non, uh, using subjunctive. It has to be a person using it. You know what I mean? First of all, let's unpack a few, a few things very slowly. The subjunctive mood is an aspect of a grammar system and of a verb that indicates wishes or exhortations or things that have not come to pass or come to fruition, to use your expression. Mm -hmm. The English language does not contain some sort of verbal marking system. That is to say that there's no explicit way to detect when the subjunctive mood is being used other than specific words such as I may, I wish, Whereas in other languages, instead of saying, I go, there's a way you can modify the verb to say, I might go, or I wish to go without having an auxiliary. And president of Russia, Vladimir Putin used to say, in politics, there is no subjunctive mood. And when I sent this, see, you're laughing, you think it's funny, but when I sent it to my other English speaking friends, they say, I don't get it. I say, do you not understand it? Or do you not know what subjunctive means? They said, yeah, I guess probably that one. But to unpack the last part, what you're saying, if I understood you correctly, is that you always need to have some sort of animate agent acting as the subject of a verb in the subjunctive mood. Is that what you're saying? Well, 
uh, you know, you could technically have an inanimate object use a subjunctive if you wanted to. That could be grammatical, but it would be a bit nonsensical because then what you're basically doing is personifying that thing. Because you can't have a, an inanimate object have emotional response to something. And that's the whole crux of it. Are you saying that the subjunctive mood requires agency? Yes, because if you're saying the rock may fall off the cliff, regardless of if you need a, a, a modal verb there or not, a, that's a, a factual probability. That's not a want or desire or doubt. If you're saying that uh, the <clears throat> a rock doubts that it will fall off of the cliff, uh, even then, like the rules for subjunctive in Spanish are that you uh, must have two different subjects, right? So uh, the first subject being the triggering verb um, or you know, using the verb that will trigger the subjunctive. And then the, the second clause having a different subject that will use the verb in the subjunctive conjugation. So, uh, so you have to have agency of, uh, of a, a subject doubting or wishing wanting what about the phrase what about the phrase the rock ought to fall down how would you analyze that one that's an opinion that's more that's a definitely a uh, stating the fact of your opinion you have to say something like i want the rock to fall down the hill it hasn't happened if you say uh the rock ought to fall down the hill that's your opinion you're stating your your opinion you know, so isn't that the heart of the subjunctive is that it's hypothetical. And I do apologize. I think we're operating on slightly different definitions, which is good, which is why definitions are so important. But my understanding of subjunctive in Latin, it's always reserved for hypothetical actions or things that either haven't happened or things that have dependencies, kind of like from a construction standpoint, if then statements where you have two clauses the protasis and the apotasis. If X comes to pass, then Y would be the result. So I lump some this term subjunctive, subjunctive in a number of languages, but it sounds like the way you understand subjunctive with respect to your languages, you use it specifically for wishes and exhortations. Am I, are, are we getting warmer with respect? Well, I think we're, to the, we're, we're, I think we're, well, I don't see the discrepancy. You say, for example, a uh, uh, tengas un buen día, have a good day. You're you're implying the espero que tu tengas un buen día. I hope that you have a good day, but you don't have to say the whole thing. You you imply it though. It's very it's implied. That's what makes it subjunctive. Still is because there's an invisible part of the sentence that is saying the I hope that you have a good day. You know. I see. So it's omitted aspects of the sentence. That makes much more sense to me. I appreciate you clarifying that. Hey, I enjoyed the conversation very much, Raymond. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Right. I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it immensely and uh, be happy to, to carry on at any time that you need more, more research. <laughs> Absolutely. I look forward to having you on the podcast again. Thank you so much. <laughs>